welcome okay. <laughs> back to One Murder at a Time it's Season a, 2. It's been a long time. It has been a long time. It seems like every time we um, plan to do the next uh, podcast, something will come up. Someone will get sick, and typically was the case. I'm fighting off a little bit of a cold right now. <laughs> I know. I thought we were going to put it off another week. But yeah, so Cash started school. Yes, and he played um, football and basketball, and so that pushed us back a little bit because time constraints. And and well, he also had COVID. He had COVID. I was sick. He had a stomach bug. I had a stomach bug. My husband had a stomach bug. We just—it's just not been a good stretch <laughs> for the last several weeks. Paul and I bought some property that we've been working on, so that's. Um, that's been pushing us back a little bit too. Right. I started a new job. Yeah, that's with true. crippling anxiety, so that's <laughs> me back a little bit too. But well, hopefully now we can get on more of a routine and get our um, episodes out in a timely fashion. <laughs> so if you're still listening, we appreciate it. So this is, uh, like we said, this is season two that we're kicking off. Before we get into season two. I Do you want to talk about Scream? We have to. <laughs> I mean, we just have to. I mean, we that can... was another big thing that happened. Our um, depression set in. Our depression set in after the new Scream came out. Um, it... Go ahead. Well, Go ahead. I just, I know Paul thinks that we talked about this for a month straight. We did. Which we did. We didn't have a conversation for a month that we didn't at least mention something else that disappointed be like, us. And another thing. <laughs> be like, I thought of this too. No, I think, um, I think part of my major disappointment, and let's just go ahead and throw this out there. They're going to be spoilers. If you haven't seen it and you're planning to watch it, then don't listen to this part. Yeah. But I just Sorry. feel like. I built it up too much in my mind, and so when well, we went, all the critics critics were even saying it was really good. I think, and then more, these people were saying, like viewers were actually giving it really good reviews and everything. And I was like, oh, I can't wait! I can't wait! And then we went to see it, and I was just like, that's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. I for me, it is the worst in the series mm-hmm, by far, and that's you know. Well, spoiler, Dewey dies, and he is killed by um, a female, which, you know, that can happen, you know. But she's, like, five feet tall, and they're fighting in this one scene, and, you know, he's they're the same height in the scene. <laughs> and I'm like, that is just, that doesn't make sense. When relatively the same size, too, like, this girl is not just short. She's also very, very thin. Yeah. Like... She's yeah. tiny. Yeah, tiny Not girl. to say tiny people can't be lethal, but in a physical altercation, mm-hmm. it's going to be more... It, it's not going to be that easy. It was brute strength, too. Yeah, it wasn't like, you know, she was doing, like, flying kicks and stuff like that. <laughs> it was, it was like, brute strength. She threw him into a wall and, like... Well, and it's not like she was supposed to be Buffy, who has, like, some kind of... A little bit of superhuman, exactly. you know. She's she was not just, the chosen one. Exactly. <laughs> There's the Buffy reference. <laughs> But that would have been more believable well, if you'd had Sarah Michelle Gellar throwing him up against the wall. Well, but Buffy had superhuman powers. Like, she healed quickly. She she was the chosen one, so she did have special powers. This girl is I just a is girl. Real. <laughs> it is real. But so now they have already greenlit 
Scream 6 from the same creators. And um, I don't know. Because Nev Campbell hasn't signed on to do it yet. She said she's going to wait and read the script. But they're supposed to start filming this summer. So well, that, that makes me a little bit concerned. I think she'll end up doing it because um, I did read that she had said she would not do a movie where Sydney dies. So that's good. Now, whether she's the final girl, whether she holds to that, I don't know. But I did see an interview with her where she was not interested in doing a movie that Sydney dies. Yeah. I'm not interested in seeing a movie that Sydney dies. <laughs> I'm not interested in seeing another one of these anyway. I'm not either, really. <laughs> I mean, Sydney and Gail were in it maybe 20 minutes total. It's like they did that just to appease the OG the old, fans. The OG fans. <laughs> yeah, I think the people that said that they liked it were not like, they weren't Hardcore. like us. Yeah, they weren't like us. Yeah. No. I, I, they were probably born after the first movie came out. I actually think it could No offense to our younger listeners. <laughs> I think it could have been a good movie. Like, a few changes could have made it a good movie. But I think the direction they went in... I was not crazy about the Billy hallucinations. I agree with you that that would have worked well as just a voiceover. Just a voiceover in her Because he looked weird. Because they did try to make him, you know, younger with CGI. And I think that that was weird looking. If they'd have had it just once, like, where she flashed and saw him, but... Him, I mean, he kind of ended up being like the hero in it. And well, I, I've, I've seen discussions online about that. There are two different takes on that. Some people say, I'm with you. I thought they tried to make it out like he was trying to help her. But mm-hmm. so other people were like, no, he He's just wants her, her to become like him. You know? Yeah. But I didn't take it that way. No, no. But it, I can see it. But Was I it Spyglass that did this? It was Spyglass, wasn't it? I'm not sure. So, Spyglass, you can reach out to me. Um, I would be interested in writing the sixth one, and I can save the franchise. (laughs) (laughs) Just give me a call. You can hit me up at at onemurderatatime.com. I'll be honest with you, anymore, like, as far as reviews and things like that go, I don't trust any of them. Because so many people are paid off, and so many people are just saying, yeah, this is good, everybody go see it, just because they're getting some kind of kickback on it. Well, they get these content creators to like say that they like it because they have so many followers on TikTok right. and all that stuff, and you know they get people to go see it because they say they like it, and it does very well for the numbers and everything. But <coughs> excuse me, but yeah, uh, I wasn't thrilled with it, and um, you can let us know what you think about that. <laughs> I guess we'll see how the Halloween ends. It's if, already finished shooting, so well, if Lori Strode dies. That's it, too. Well, there's talk because she only filmed for a couple weeks, so. <laughs> We're very vested in this. <laughs> Lori Strode and, uh, and Sydney Prescott, those are you two final girls. Well, They're, that's what I'm saying. You're called a final girl for a reason. Because you get through the final. Because you're, you're the final You're girl. the last one standing. Yeah. Uh, if you want to take it in another direction, just make another, just make a different movie. Yeah. Why do you have to, like, tie it on? Yeah. It's just because you want to, you know, ride the coattails mm-hmm. of, but whatever. I don't know. Disappointment. It was disappointment. I'm already mad thinking about it again. Yeah. And it just it. now got released on, like, Voodoo and streaming services. So, go check that out. <laughs> Let us know what you If you, you want to be disappointed. <laughs> there were decent parts. I don't want to say the whole thing was a stinker, but, I mean, 
overall, it just didn't. It didn't. The parts that Gail and Sydney were in were good, yeah. but it was few and far between. Very few. Okay, should we get started? Yeah, let's get People into this. are tired this. of hearing us talk. So actually, for season two, Mandy picked this uh, this case, and this one was twisted. Yeah, I um, what drew me to it, there's a um, podcast, and they also showed on YouTube, called True Crime Recaps, and they had done this one, and I'd watched it, and it was really good. They always do a really good job with what they do. Mm-hmm. And this is very interesting, because they framed it as um, the original Chris Watts. And so that's what it's drew very me It's very similar. Very it, similar. Yes, it is. So, yeah. Because I hadn't heard of this case. But um, so we're going to jump into the warped mind of Chris Coleman. In the early morning hours of May 5th, 2009, in Columbia, Illinois, Police Sergeant Jason Donjon and Detective Justin Barlow responded to a welfare check for a woman and her two sons. So upon arriving at the seemingly peaceful two-story home in a quiet subdivision, the two men began to knock and ring the doorbell. There was no answer. And this was early morning hours. Sergeant Don John made his way around the side of the house where he noticed the window to the basement was open with the screen lying against a chair in the backyard. It was then that he notified Detective Barlow and dispatch. With their guns drawn, unknown what they were walking into, the two men climbed through the basement window and made their presence known by calling out Columbia Police. And still no answer in this house. Mm -hmm. And they know that there are people there. Right. uh, Supposedly. And so they go in, the house is quiet, no movement going on. Um, They search the basement, nothing out of the ordinary. And as they start at the first floor, they start noticing writing on the wall in red paint Mm -hmm. it was saying things like you knew this was coming and punished and just other disturbing stuff that was written in this paint going all the way up the walls and it actually carried into the first floor as officers were able to make their way onto the first floor they had another officer join them on the first floor officer steve Patton, and uh, they began to search the home they searched the first floor didn't find anybody and once again they're calling out the police you know is anybody here nobody's answering so they start up the stairs going to the second floor, and when they reach the top, Sergeant Don John looked to his left and saw a female lying on her stomach on the bed. Uh, he shouted to her, but there was no response. He checked uh, the rest of the bedroom, and then there was nobody else in there. And then he felt for a pulse, and it was determined that she was deceased at this point. And uh, rigor mortis had already set in. Officer Patton went to check another bedroom where he found the body of a young boy also in his bed. And Don John went to a third bedroom where he found yet another young boy. Two young boys and a female, all deceased in the house. Um, And actually, one of the boys even had the red spray paint on his body as well, on his stomach. Mm -hmm. So three victims, all dead in their beds. But why were the police there to begin with? That's a question. So why was it necessary to do a welfare check on this family? That's where we meet Chris Coleman. Right. Um, Chris Coleman, he was born in 1977. His parents are Ron and Connie Coleman. They were both evangelical pastors. They lived in Monroe County, Illinois. Chris was an MP in the Air Force and was described by his parents as being mild-tempered and sensitive. Chris and his parents, they had some pretty strict conservative values. I would say very much the man runs the house and the man should have his needs Woman met. Is submissive. Right. Super submissive. Right. Yeah. So that's the kind of upbringing he 
had, and that was the views that he took on as well. Sherry Weiss, who um, ends up being Chris's wife, she was born in 1977. She grew up in Cook County, Illinois. She was also in the Air Force. Uh, Chris and Sherry actually met at a K-9 training seminar in Lackland Air Force Base in May of 1997. Their relationship developed really quickly, and within a few months, Sherry was pregnant with their first child, um, and that would be Garrett Coleman. They eloped in the fall of 1997. So pretty much, I mean, this is a quick thing. They met in May. They eloped in the fall. She was already pregnant. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just, it happened really, really quickly. Chris's parents were not pleased with Sherry. Um, They thought she didn't fit the idea that they had for what their son's wife should be. Chris's father actually stated she was a worldly little girl, little short shorts, tattoo on her leg, not the person we thought he'd be with. And he also claimed that Chris regretted the marriage almost as soon as it happened. So it kind of tells you, gives you a little insight, like everything is Sherry's fault. Mm -hmm. I have a lot to say about his dad. Yeah, I do too. We'll get into that. Yeah. So, she was pregnant with Garrett. Um, Garrett was born in 1998. Then she gets pregnant again. They have another son, Gavin, in the year 2000. Um, The boys were described as sports-loving and rambunctious. They both played Little League Baseball. So, you're typical little kids. I mean... They were the cutest little boys, too. Oh, yeah. They were adorable. They They had blonde hair, blue eyes. Mm -hmm. From the outside... If you were looking at this, you would see pretty much a picture-perfect family. Mm -hmm. Um, Nothing really out of the ordinary. For a long time, actually, the couple lived in Columbia, Illinois, where Chris started working for Joyce Meyer Ministries, and Sherry was a homemaker. I don't know how many people are familiar with Joyce Meyer. I'd say a lot. Um, She has quite a few followers. Um, she's a televangelist and Christian author, and she has a pretty large following. Yeah. Due to her Christian beliefs, she is a target for a lot of hate mail and sometimes threats. Joyce knew Chris because his parents were acquaintances of hers, mm-hmm. and she hired him to act as her bodyguard for public appearances. So with Chris's military background being in, you know, military police, he was a good candidate for that, actually, and it didn't hurt that his parents were... friendly with her that got him in so chris is working sherry's at home um they lived really close to chris's parents and neighbors said they seemed like a wonderful couple and a beautiful family so just nothing out of the ordinary Mm -hmm. because of the type of work that chris did he was frequently out of town um it was hard on sherry and the kids he was gone a lot pretty much everything was on her you know as far as the kids went and um chris made a really good salary it was over a hundred thousand per year but sherry also liked to spend money Mm -hmm. so and she wanted to keep up their lifestyle you know they had a nice home they had nice vehicles so the appearances were apparently important to them right and so they made a lot of money but they spent a lot of money Sherry also donated a lot of money, though, to charities, and she also went on a lot of mission trips. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't all just, you know, well, that material a, things. Well, that was the thing. She kind of grew up in um, Christian faith, too. So, But the extremities of what Chris grew up in and what she grew up in were completely different. It was almost like two different faiths. Right. And so, But like you said, she went on missionary trips, and, you know, she gave back a whole lot to communities and stuff like that. But it's just... 
two totally different belief systems under the same name. Right. You know. Right. Sorry, I hit my microphone. <laughs> no, it is. It's like you said. It's almost two different religions. Basically, mm-hmm. it's very different interpretation. Very much so. So. Um, As time went along, there started to become issues with Chris and Sherry's marriage. Um, The main things seemed to be the time apart, the money, lack of affection, and one of the biggest things, Chris's parents. So and living that close to him, yeah. I mean, they yeah. were really, and they never warmed up to Sherry. Like from the beginning, they didn't like her, and it stayed like that. They never thought she was good enough for Chris. There were also issues regarding Chris's expectations for his sons. So apparently, Chris was very strict and expected basic perfection from his kids. He was the main disciplinarian, and Sherry was more fun-loving and affectionate with the kids. Mm-hmm. So he had really, really high expectations. Unrealistic expectations. Yeah, I think it seemed that way of everyone but himself. But um, <laughs> anyway, it seems Funny like that's the way it always happens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. By 2008, um, things had gotten really bad between Chris and Sherry. So they got married in 97, so we're up to 2008. So, where it's nine years, Chris wanted to get a divorce. He was afraid to get a divorce because of his job with Joyce Meyer. I'm not really sure why he was so afraid of that because Joyce Meyer has been divorced. Oh, has she? Yes. I didn't know that. (laughs) I'm not really certain why that was such a big deal to him. Because, yes, when she was young, it was like before she started all this, she had gotten married. It didn't last that long, I don't think. And she got divorced and gotten remarried. I don't think he was a bit concerned about that. I don't either. I think it was about his parents. I think so, too. I, yeah. and, um, and keeping up appearances. Right. So, Chris was dead set. He wanted out of the marriage. Sherry kept trying to make it work. Even though she knew they had issues, she knew there were problems, but she kept trying. Mm-hmm. So, in November of 2008, threatening letters began arriving to their house. There were also some sent to Joyce Meyer and some members of her family. Um, the letters were strange, though, because they didn't threaten Joyce Meyer. They threatened Chris, who was her bodyguard. Yeah, okay, about that. So, if you're going to threaten Joyce Meyer adjacent, mm-hmm. is what they're basically doing. Joyce Meyer is the one with the money. Right. That's who you're going to threaten. Yes. You're not going to threaten some bodyguard. You don't know how much they're making. Right. You don't know how much money he has. You're going to like basically try to get either money out of Joyce Meyer or you're going to try to bring her down. Right. You're not going to try to bring down like her security guard. You don't go after the guppy. You go after the bass. <laughs> I mean, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Why would you go after someone who is not... In the same position. Yeah. Like, it makes absolute no sense. I could, I could understand it more if it was Joyce Meyer's family. Yeah. But he, he wasn't family to her. No. And no, it, it made absolutely no sense. So, yeah, it was very strange. It, At this point, too, though, uh, Chris had told, or Sherry had told some of her friends that um, Chris had told her that her and the kids were getting in the way of his job. Mm-hmm. And that she knew they were on heading for divorce like mm-hmm. she just knew it was coming but then these letters start and that changes the game a little bit well can you imagine too so chris is out of town a lot and here she thinks there's some psycho out there sending letters to their house threatening them knows where they live knows where they live all this 
Can you imagine how terrified she probably was for her and her kids? Mm -hmm. Like, that was torture. Yeah. And so they actually did install a security camera near the mailbox. But miraculously, (laughs) once they did that, they didn't catch anything. The letters stopped. For a bit, yeah. Yeah. So um, it was also around this time that Sherry started telling her friends that Chris had changed. And she suspected he was having an affair. And she actually even thought she knew who it was with. She had a friend of hers from high school that she had introduced him to. And she had also told friends if anything happened to her that Chris did it. So, I mean, that's... That's pretty telling. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I mean, you know something is going on with this person, you know? And just how scared she was. I wonder if she thought, you know, those letters and everything... If she, Towards the end, if she thought something was going on with like that. Like something wasn't right something with that. Something wasn't right with that. Yeah. After she noticed how much he had changed and suspected of the affair and all that stuff. And then these letters start and emails start coming in. And the email address they use is destroychris at gmail.com. Why are you trying to destroy Chris? You would <laughs> want to try to... Dest- I mean, if this was a legitimate you know thing going on it would be destroy joyce meyer you know or even something related to religion yeah like Like, what what good does it do to destroy her bodyguard it doesn't because these emails and everything they would say like um stop working for joyce meyer you're gonna pay and why (laughs) that makes no sense right it it doesn't it doesn't add up to anything right and uh, it, it the the amount of stupidity behind these emails is mm-hmm. astounding. It yeah. really is. And to think, especially this was in what year, 2008, 2009? Mm-hmm. I mean, forensics, especially like with electronics and stuff like that, had come so far. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know we're 12 years past that, but... I mean, they can tell where things are coming from. You can't just type an email and think, oh, nobody's going to know it was me. Right. Everything can be tied back to your IP address and all this stuff. Even when you delete it. Even when you delete it, it's not (laughs) deleted, you know? But it's crazy to me how somebody thought they could get away with this. Well, so basically, that'll bring us up to the morning, May 5th, 2009. Chris left home about 5.45 a.m. He was going to the gym. Um, while he was gone, he called Sherry's phone and also sent text messages. Sherry never responded to the calls or texts. So when Chris was on his way home, he called a neighbor who was a police officer and asked him to check on Sherry and the boys. This is strange to me in itself because if you get up and go to the gym at 5.45 in the morning, why would you immediately start calling and texting? Like, most likely they're asleep. Well, he said, on a normal day. Yeah, he said they were asleep when he left. Why would you be calling them 15 minutes later and be all concerned right. that they didn't answer the phone? They're asleep. It's 6 o'clock in the morning. Right. It's, it makes absolutely no sense. Right. So the officer, you know, the neighbor friend, um, goes. They check the house. They notice the screen out in the back of the house. And so he called for backup. And they go into the house and they see the, the scene that you described earlier with the spray paint on the wall saying I'm always watching and you have paid things like that um when Chris arrived home the officer asked him to stay outside while they searched the house they immediately made note though that Chris should have been home in about five minutes from where he was coming and it took him about 13 minutes Mm -hmm. 
So he didn't come, like, he didn't just, if you were worried about, oh gosh, you know, I can't get a hold of anybody. You're so worried you call somebody to go check on it, but you kind of take the long way home. Well, and they also said when he pulled up, he did not rush to the door and, you know, didn't try to push past anybody looking for his family. He just kind of calmly went and leaned against his car and just waited to see what what was going to happen. It's very strange. It's very strange. And, I mean, if if it was me and I really thought that my family was in danger, the second I got... First of all, I would take the fastest route to get back home. I would not, like, you know, take a bunch of turns to make it last longer. Right. I would get home. They would have to, like, physically hold me out from getting in the house to see what was wrong with my family. Right. So that's suspect number one. And they come out and told him that his family was deceased they put him into an ambulance he's not distraught he's not acting strange or anything like that and he's sitting there on this gurney and one of the officers notices that his knuckles are bruised Mm -hmm. they're like red and swollen red swollen Mm -hmm. and you know they're like well what happened to your knuckles without answering he starts pounding on the gurney Mm -hmm. so to try to say i've I guess this is why. Yeah, like, they saw it before you did that. What what yeah. kind of sense does that make? He sheds no tears. He, you know, when they bring out his family, he does not, like, show any kind of emotion at all. And I can't imagine seeing that. Mm-hmm. But red flags start popping up right from the very beginning. Yeah. That, so, basically, they take him to the police station to be interviewed. And he can give his statement. The, the police suspected his involvement pretty early on in the investigation. Um, they discovered evidence of their unhappy marriage and infidelity on Chris's part. Um, he had, been, in fact, been having an affair with one of Sherry's friends. Her name was Tara Lentz. Tara lived in St. Petersburg, Florida, and she told police that she and Chris had been having an affair and had plans to get married in January of 2010. Chris had a he had canceled a planned family trip to Disney World and booked a cruise for himself and Tara. Can you imagine? And yeah, so he has this plan to get married in January. This is May, so you know there's only a few months left. Um, Tara told police that Chris told her that he was going to serve Sherry with divorce papers either the day of the murders or the day before yeah i'd read that too on several different reports that he told her everything would be finalized with his wife on may 5th yeah the day of the you know yeah the day everything happened so um as the story got out people came by the house and they had made a memorial to sherry and the boys like stuffed animals and things like that chris tore it down he also threw away boxes of sherry and the boys belongings within a week of the murders Wow. So basically, he goes in and just starts taking out anything that was theirs. Mm-hmm. It's just crazy. The DNA evidence was going to be hard because Chris lived in the house. So his DNA, you know, could be anywhere. And, you know, that wouldn't be suspicious because he lived there. But there was DNA taken from underneath Sherry's fingernails. And it was consistent with Chris's. But it wasn't conclusive. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they couldn't say for sure. It was likely it was his, but they couldn't say without a doubt. So, the biggest breaks in the case come from Chris's laptop and the medical examiner. Um, upon investigation, it was determined that the threatening letters were sent to Chris, Joyce Meyer, and her son had been typed and sent from Chris's own laptop. 
he's sending threatening letters to his family, his boss, and her family. From his work from laptop. From his work laptop. Yeah. And thought he was going to get by with it. I just, it's mind-blowing. And he, he told the police, he said, well, I have two laptops and I take one with me on trips and I leave the other one, you know, at the office. Somebody must have gotten into my office. and No. What kind of sense does that make? None. Why, why would anybody have any reason at all to do that? They don't. It makes no sense. It really, you have to wonder about the intelligence level mm-hmm. because I, anyhow well and then they uh even found a receipt for the spray paint that was used on the walls uh, of the house to make it look like a madman had done this mm-hmm. they found that receipt and it, chris had bought it like a couple i think it was like a couple months earlier so mm-hmm. they, i mean this was planned for a really long time and when they told chris's dad about the spray paint and the affair he said chris bought it for garrett the spray paint to make bullseyes with you know for shooting and stuff like that and that the killer must have grabbed it okay chris tells you that he leaves at 5 45 he calls his buddy the cop at like six o'clock like 15 minutes later because he can't get them so this person goes into this house finds this random spray paint Mm -hmm. has enough time to paint on all these walls i mean a lot of walls. We're not just talking about one little thing. It was in the basement, going up from the basement mm-hmm. all the way up the stairs. Has time to murder three people and get out before your buddy the cop comes over. Yeah. Makes, makes absolutely no sense. No, the uh, medical examiner actually put the time of death for Sherry and the boys to be before 5 a.m. They said the, like three to four hours before the bodies were found. Yeah, because um, Sherry had already, rigor mortis had already started mm-hmm. to set in. So... Um, so it basically means that Chris was there when mm-hmm. the murders happened. Like, there's not a possibility mm-hmm. that he wasn't there. Mm-hmm. So that was also a big uh, yeah. Piece and he of had told evidence. he had told them during his interview that um, she had fallen asleep in his arms the night before. She probably did as she was dying. I know it's ridiculous, and to think that he, he was either so conceited that he thought he could get away with all this. Or he was just completely stupid and mm-hmm. didn't realize how forensics and all that works. It's just mind-blowing that people think that they can get away with this stuff. And and the fact that he was military police. That, yeah. I hate to say that, but that could be part of where his... Arrogance? Yes, thinking he was going to get by with it because he's in, you know... Well, he thought he had connections, too, with Joyce Meyer. Is, yes. You know, Which... Joyce actually did come there to the crime scene when it happened. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, she was there comforting him, yeah. you know. Of course, she didn't know the full story at the time, and so. Well, and like I said, too, they um, when they told his dad, his dad is a piece of work. Like, yeah, oh my major. Gosh. But when they tell him about the affair with Tara, he tells them that Tara was filling a void that Chris wasn't getting at home. Every mm-hmm. man has needs that need to be met. And if your wife doesn't respect you, you'll find the respect somewhere else. Right. He said that um, Sherry told Chris all the time that he was moody and he wasn't affectionate enough. She never complimented him. And that's why he was so attracted to Tara, according to his father. His father. Making excuses for his son to have an affair and murder his whole family, I guess. Yeah, this was, I mean, this was after the murders, mm-hmm. obviously. So, I mean, and 
They knew he did it. Yeah. There, there was no question. There was no question he did it. Well, with the evidence that they had, they actually arrested Chris on May 19th, 2009. So this is not a long, drawn-out thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is within, you know... A week and a half, he's arrested. He was charged with three counts of first-degree murder. Um, Sherry's family also filed a wrongful death suit against Chris, and that was to keep him from being able to sell all their assets. So it was actually smart. Yeah. Um, Friends began to come forward after the arrest, and they were telling more stories that painted a not-so-happy picture of the couple. Um, Chris had told friends that Sherry was keeping him from being able to achieve God's destiny for his life. I have a huge problem when people use God to try to defend their actions. Their actions. It's it's so degrading and so just a slap in the face to the Christian, the real Christian faith. Mm-hmm. And it, it really, really bothers me. Yeah, and a lot of times in these stories too, it is like the parents before, like it's generations. Yeah, but still, it's like. You can't say, I'm not going to get a divorce, but I'll kill my whole family. That makes complete sense. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's mind blowing. Like, I don't understand it. But these people, they don't, their minds are not right anyway, apparently. Mm -hmm. Because not a a normal person is not going to do this. But um, Chris's trial started on April 25th, 2011. Um, Tara testified to the affair and told about their marriage plans and uh, how they had met up in Arizona and Hawaii while Chris was traveling for work. Um, Joyce Meyer was also called to testify via video. And she actually stated that Chris would have likely lost his job if she had known about the affair. But her ministry employs many people who've been divorced. So basically... The he divorce would have been, would have been fine, divorce. but they would have. She would have fired him. If she known he was cheating on his wife mm-hmm. because that does reflect on her ministry. Yeah, you can't employ people who do things that you're preaching against. Right. You know, infidelity is wrong, so you can't have or you shouldn't. Mm-hmm. So basically, his whole thinking of "I'll lose my job if I get divorced" was bullcrap. Mm-hmm. So it really was never about that. It was about him wanting to start a new life. And I'll never understand how these people think they're just going to do this and then just go on and live happily ever after. Yeah, like, oh, well, that's all behind me now. You know, yeah. I can go live my, my life. wife and my two sons that I murdered. How, I mean, that I put my hands around their throat. Well, they said on, they did have ligature marks on their neck, so he likely used some type of twine. Yeah. Yeah, they found like a twine. Um, in his um, gym bag. Yeah. That matched the some of the fibers found on one of the little boys. But how do you do that? Like, and, just and watch the life leave their eyes. Yeah. I, I can't imagine that. Uh, Likely, he. my guess would be that they were on their stomachs and he, because he's a coward. and so Couldn't face them. Yeah. That would be my guess. Because didn't it say one of them was laying on their stomach? She was on her stomach. Yeah. Yeah. Says my guess is, you know, he didn't even look at him. So um, Chris did not take the stand during his trial. Surprise, because there's nothing he could say that would not incriminate him. Mm -hmm. On May 5th, 2011, he was convicted on all three counts of first degree murder. He was sentenced to life without parole. At the time, Illinois was going through this weird thing. So they were about to abolish the death penalty. So... 
instead of giving him the death penalty, it would have it would have basically been overturned as soon as they had done it. Mm-hmm. So they just went ahead and did life without parole because right. he would have been a candidate for the death penalty, but Illinois abolished it. So, and what surprised me too, I mean, there was a there was a mountain of evidence against him when they did the first deliberations with the um, jury. jury they were seven to five. Like, yeah. no. Like, they didn't think he was guilty. And then it came out all, like, they started reading all the stuff that, um, about the affair and stuff like that and all the lies he had for, told in his first police interview. And that's what changed the seven to guilty. Mm-hmm. And I was like, were you not listening during the trial? Right. I mean, because that was presented during the trial. But they went back and read transcripts of it. So, but that, that amazed me that it, it took that long actually for them to that there were seven people that didn't think he was guilty yeah i don't see how i mean when the medical examiner tells you they were all dead before five o'clock and he tells you he didn't leave the house till five forty-five, how could you think anybody else yeah did this yeah it makes no sense but chris's parents never believed he was guilty they basically made up excuses especially his father made up excuses for chris's affair um he had told many different media outlets that Sherry never fulfilled her wifely duties. He makes me sick. It's he disgusting. Really does. I mean, it really is. I, how do you excuse? He can still love his son. That form of whatever religion you want to call that, the man can do whatever he wants, and he's living, you know, the way God intended and mm-hmm. stuff like this. The woman is always at fault. She can't do anything, but the man can go out and have all the affairs he wants to have. He can go out and drink every night, and he can come home and hit his wife. He can do anything he wants to, but it's always the woman's fault. Yeah. It's always something she's not doing right that's causing his behavior. She's always at fault. You made me do this. You made me hit you. You made me go out and have an affair. It's bullcrap. There's no personal responsibility, accountability for their own actions. Yeah, and oftentimes, those are the same people who complain about society and how there's never any personal accountability. They're these same people who are doing the exact same thing behind closed doors. Yeah. And it's, it just, it makes you, as a person of faith, it really angers you because, like, this is what people see. Mm Mm-hmm. Because they're the loudest. They're they're the ones that are out screaming everything they're against, everything they hate. Mm -hmm. You know, because, oh, it's all hate. We hate this. We hate this. Not like, this is what I'm for. Mm -hmm. This is what I love. This, you know, because that's what Christian faith is about. It's about loving people. And accepting people. Yeah, accepting people. And love and you you can't just make up the rules as you go along and make no. the make the Bible, which is what I assume in the Christian faith that they're supposedly in. I assume that's their guidelines, mm-hmm. and that it, that's not what it that's not what it says. Well, it, you can take bits and pieces from anything and make it fit your own mm-hmm. narrative. Yeah, but you have to take things as a collective whole. And what you get from the whole message is we're not here to judge other people. We're here to love other people, and we're here to spread a message of love and peace. Mm-hmm. It's not a message of, I hate you because of this. I hate you because of that. It doesn't. That's not what we're here for. And people like that, you're right, they're the loudest, and they're the ones that give people who 
might never have been introduced to any other type of um, faith a bad impression. Yeah, it leaves a bad taste in it. It does, and I understand it Mm -hmm. because it makes me angry. I'm like, are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. You're using this as an excuse for your own behavior. Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous. They and it's copy wrong. and paste the Bible right. to fit their own narrative. And it because me and Paul have talked about that before. You can take you can take one passage in the Bible. I can read it, you can read it, Paul can a hundred different people can read it. You're gonna get a hundred different interpretations of that. And to just take bits and pieces out of it and say, Oh well this says this and not even read any of the rest of the chapter or any mm-hmm. of the verses around it. That that's not how it works. It's a it's a collective, right? And it it just angers me and it puts me in a bad mood. Yeah, no, I totally understand. I agree. Along the same lines, one more thing that um, Ron Coleman, his dad, had said was, he said, "Well, I mean, every man has his desires, and every man has to be respected. It's built into every man. If your wife doesn't respect you, then you're going to find it someplace else." Okay, Ron. Yeah. Wouldn't you hate to be his wife? <laughs> Pretty much. Oh, I like, because you don't read too much about her. No. Well, well you know, she's well, probably, probably not allowed. I was going to say, she probably isn't doesn't speak because her husband doesn't allow it. Yeah. Which, whatever. But this is, this case, it is very similar to Chris Watts. That, yeah. That happens, you know. Several years later. I was obsessed with that for a little while. And like it actually became an unhealthy obsession. Like I was watching like everything I could about it. I had to step back. I'm like, this is like consuming me. I think it was 2018. Well, this is eerily similar. Mm -hmm. And they're both named Chris. They both kill their kids and their wife to start their new life. You know, that. And what's funny is that they ended up. Chris Coleman and Chris Watts ended up in Dodge Correctional Institute in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so they're in the same they're prison. In, they're both in the same prison. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. And they're both named Chris. Yeah. I wonder <laughs> how that goes. But to this day, Chris maintains his innocence, says he you know, he didn't do it, and he's tried to appeal, which hasn't worked. But um, who's he kidding? Who else would have done this? I mean... Yeah, no, it it's impossible that anyone else did it. Yeah, so so in December 2012, Sherry's family actually won a lawsuit so that Sherry, Garrett, and Gavin's bodies would be exhumed and moved to their hometown. Um, Chris's family had fought that, but ultimately the judge decided that not allowing the family to be moved was allowing the victims to be controlled by the person who murdered them. Wow. So... If they hadn't been moved when Chris dies, he would have been buried right beside him. Are you kidding? I so, didn't know that. Yeah, so the judge, you know, was like, you've already murdered them. I'm not going to let you control them even further. Wow. So, I mean, things like that. You think about that. I mean, how victimizing would that be mm-hmm. for him to be right there beside him? Well, their fam, you know, her family going to visit and then he, 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 he right, there. right there. Yeah. Now, I did want to mention, too, so the girl that he was having an affair with, it is a bit different situation than the Chris Watts, because the Chris Watts situation, it was a little different as far as that, because the girl that Chris Coleman was seeing did not live anywhere near them. She was in Florida, so she was actually being told 
they were divorcing. Yeah, you know, everything was already well, in was, motion. Really, she was super cooperative with the police, yeah. and she is kind of the nail in the coffin. I mean, yeah. they had all the videos of them together in Hawaii and everything, and that that really sealed his fate with the jury. Yeah. So I mean, it was it was a different situation, but. Yeah, because she was. I mean, she fully cooperated and whatever. I mean, she testified. Mm -hmm. So, different, a little bit different in that aspect. I think they both had similar motivations, Chris and Chris. Mm -hmm. You know, they were just going to leave their families and start a new life. I just, I I don't know. (laughs) You have to wonder about people. Like, like, I don't know what makes, like, what, their egos must be so high yeah. That they think they're they're just going to be able to do that and get away with it. Yeah. I mean, did they not watch any TV? Apparently, they don't watch as much ID as I do. I know. <laughs> Every night, I'm watching something, and I'm like, these people, they just think they're going to get by with it. They're not going to get by with this. And, I mean, he robbed this family, this young woman, and these two kids. These two kids were just so cute and had their whole life. Mm-hmm. To get away from him, you know, they break could the cycle, break the cycle from the, that toxic family, mm-hmm. and they could have done so much good, and, and they probably would have because they had her had influence, her. yeah, because she was not on the same yeah. wavelength as them mm-hmm. as far as their thinking, so they probably would have, mm-hmm. and so yeah, it just—it's heartbreaking. It is. You look at pictures of them, and it's just. It well, they said one heart. of the kids, I think it was Garrett, was like her, was like super wild and like, well, not wild, but like. For a kid, For though. a kid, like he was very precocious mm-hmm. and, you know, he enjoyed being the center of attention. And then the other one was more reserved, but they complemented each other well. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, they just, they just seem so full of life. And to be robbed by that, by a person that's supposed to protect you and be there for you and supposed to be the head of your family Mm because that's what according to the bible that's what the man's supposed to be is the head of the family right but you know the head of the family can go murder his wife and two kids and it's just because you know she didn't hug him enough she didn't hug him enough for telling he was pretty (laughs) so yeah so that's the story of chris coleman yeah well you were talking about um this is one case i would like to do at some point but i would like to until there's some closure you were talking about, you know, no one gets by with it anymore. But that's unless you're the Delphi murderer. Oh. So. Yeah. That case is annoying. And I don't know what's going on there, but somebody needs to get in there and solve it. Is yeah. all I'm saying. Yes. You're 100% correct. How do you have video and audio of a person and you can't make an arrest? Yeah. I don't know what's the deal with that. But anyhow, we may yeah, do we, that. We may dive into that one. At some point, that one, anytime I read anything about it, it makes my blood boil because I'm like, there has, something's going on. I, I, anyhow. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but no, 99% of people will not get by with it. Yeah. But but we appreciate you listening. Like we said, this is season two, episode one. Yeah. And um, if you have any ideas, send us a message on onemurderatatime.com. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter. We're not on Twitter, I lied. <laughs> We're on Instagram. <laughs> Who did I think I was? <laughs> Michael Rosenbaum? <laughs> no, you can find us on Facebook or Instagram. Uh, send us a message, and we'll talk to you next time. Mm, later. <laughs> Deuces.